Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast code acast. You are listening to Mist Apex podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Mist Apex Podcast. The title of today's show is F1 Shouldn't Be This Late. It's a school night, and that's by Admiral Pride on Twitter. Runner-up, welcome to Miami, the Baku of the Americas. That's from F1 Swift. On Twitter, I'm your host, Richard Spanners. Ready? Welcome to our Miami Grand Prix race review. And as much of the as the drivers have complained about the hot and physical conditions in Miami, yeah, it's hard to drive an F1 car in the heat. But could they stand the pressure of podcasting quite late into the night? It's approaching midnight here in the UK, so I've swapped my rum for coffee as we go late into the witching hour. So coming up, we'll discuss whether Verstappen. Was the difference between the two teams today? What could Ferrari have done differently? We'll ask if Mercedes should change their strategic approach, and we'll ask what earth did Aston Martin do to offend Haas today? And has Miami found a place in your F1 heart? We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. <laughs> I'm joined in the shed by Matt Two Rumpets, and not currently catching up on my sleep with my eyes open. And、uh, racing driver Brad Philpot. Hi, Brad. Wholeheartedly embracing the American razzmatazz. Yeah, we'll get deep into whether we think the the Miami Grand Prix was a success or not. But I think the place to really start is where the race was won and lost. And、uh, I think I'll kick it off this week if you if you don't mind, Matt. I really do think that this week the race was won and lost by Max Verstappen. Yeah, the team seemed pretty evenly matched. There's obviously differences between the car. But I think when a driver stands up with a performance like that and is the difference, I think that's a that's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, we could argue about it. Verstappen gave the performance needed to win the race. I think Red Bull, the team, continue to be better on the opening stent tire, especially, and I think we saw that、uh, with Leclerc. But the winning move, really, for Verstappen, although we could 
perhaps playing the dirty side of the grid a little bit for Carlos, the, the winning move was getting past signs at the start of the race. That let everything happen. Had he not done that, we could have seen a different outcome. So why don't we start just sort of uh, setting the scene of what the drivers were dealing with behind the wheel. Even if we go uh, through the top three teams, really, a lot was made of the straight line advantage that the Red Bull had. Clearly, the Ferrari have got a good package. Is it as simple as Red Bull chose a path and have seemed to have chosen a path in previous races that that, that favours straight line speed and Ferrari are going for like an overall lap time? It, much in the style of Red Bull during their dominant years. They were rarely, you know, the fastest in the speed trap. Or is, or is it something inherent in these cars? Well, I think it's inherent in the concept of the cars, if, if that's okay for me to say. Red Bull looked at these regulations, decided to make as much downforce, I think, from their floor as possible, therefore having a minimum drag. And that means that we are going to maximize our industry speed. And they designed an entire package around that concept. Whereas Ferrari looked, I think, at what Red Bull were doing and chose to have a very neutral car that will work well at a lot of different circuits. Now, we've had some circuits where top-line speed has really been important. And I think the DRS's own, in particular, favored Red Bull uh, when they they had that to use. But at, at the end of the day, it's really, to me, just down to which team on the weekend has a better control of their tire management at the start of the race. And that's been Red Bull. And whether that's down to their concept or just they have nailed the suspension, they have less porpoising or what have you. It's also, I think, important to note that Ferrari hasn't really developed the car yet, whereas Red Bull has brought a lot of development. Mm. So we might see at the other end of the season, Ferrari bring developments that Red Bull has run out of money for. So this this is a long game we're playing here. <laughs> so in my head there, I was thinking, okay, well, if we go to, say, a, a track that's that's got more high-speed corners, say something like, I don't know, Barcelona or, or Silverstone, then you might see that advantage disappear. And in my head, I was thinking, Brad... If it's a track where, if you go to a track where it's less dependent on DRS overtakes on a long straight, they might lose that advantage. But it is feeling this season like DRS overtakes on long straights really is the the key area that you want to you want to be good because that seems to be dominating this regulation set. Yeah, part of me wonders though whether maybe our view of the the comparative strengths of these two teams is getting is getting slightly skewed because we've seen a couple of pretty similar tracks, which, as you say, have this, they kind of benefit the Red Bull philosophy with these long straights. Had this been a track where those long DRS zones didn't exist and it was a little bit more corner focused, it really looked like the Ferrari was just much, much stronger in in those areas. And a lot of tracks on the rest of the calendar, and we've still got a a whole lot of tracks to come, seem to me like maybe they will be more suited to the Ferrari. So... I don't think we should panic just yet that Red Bull are suddenly going to start running away with it. You know, Leclerc got an, an early lead in the standings, but now it seems like Verstappen is just super strong. I think maybe the run of races we've had most recently may just be making it look a bit more in Red Bull's favour. Having said that, when I then think about the reliability problems that, that Max has had so far in the season um, and, you know, losing out on a lot of points through not finishing early on, 
it, it would be looking pretty mm. ominous in, in terms of Max being a, quite a clear favourite if it wasn't for um, if it wasn't for that big buffer Leclerc, Leclerc mm. built up. So, yeah. But my view is, I, I think maybe the Ferrari looks like the. It looks like I would rather drive the Ferrari than the Red Bull. Oh, really? That is interesting. Even even though uh, Verstappen has won all the races that he's finished, you're still looking ahead at the season and going, "Oh, mate, I I think I'd prefer the Ferrari going forward." And and he, so I mean, Imola was a track where passing was hard. So having the straight line speed to attack and defend obviously was important. Uh, Saudi and, and and this track were pretty similar. You've got Baku coming up that will be similar again. Um, but I'm, I'm interested that you'd still want that Ferrari. I mean, I'd need to look at the whole calendar and really work out which tracks are kind of more straight line, um, which are more benefited by having a better straight line speed. But in terms of driving, the Ferrari looks nicer to drive. It looks like... Leclerc can follow quite easily in, in the twisty stuff. And it looks like the car, apart from some some porpoising, which doesn't tend to really affect them too much, it looks like the more compliant car. But the Red Bull is just so strong on the straights. What, what were they saying? Was it 10 kilometers per hour? Mm, difference that's to that a lot, DRS? A lot, I mean, yeah. that's you can get away with having a bit of a wooden car through some of the corners as long as it's okay if you've got a massive straight line speed advantage like that. So you know you in terms of the driving side you'd take the one which was nicer through the corners but over yeah. the season i'm not 100 percent sure thing is matt when when red bull was a, had the tire advantage in the first stint they were able to to overtake when they and use that advantage and then pull a gap when it looked like ferrari had a, a bit of an advantage on the colder older hard tires the clerk couldn't capitalize on it so strategically i think i want the red bull at the moment well it's really all about the speed you carry into the turn and the traction you get out of the turn. And I think this is where Red Bull advantage was with being better on the tires because we saw early days, Leclerc did put a gap into Verstappen, but around about lap four or five. And and clearly, I think that was a plan for Ferrari to get as far ahead as possible before DRS really came into play and then just try and keep him out of range. His, his um, right front tire went off. I don't know if it was graining or what, but he made an interesting comment post-race saying that we are really good with tire warm-up, but we struggle especially on the medium tire. And I think that's going to be a nut that Ferrari has to crack in order to be able to make that overtake back that you were discussing. Okay, so but as much as we're, we're sort of highlighting an, a tactical advantage Red Bull must have had, I think if we look at how... Red Bull got the win. For my money, it's how Verstappen got the win. And see if you disagree with any of these points. Obviously, he got the good start. Although, didn't we didn't we see again the even numbers all getting kind of a bit of a rough start, and and the odd numbers getting a better start? Um, I think Perez was the only one out of the top six that maintained position on the start. Right. Okay. So, so that's a, a thing we can come back to because I don't love that lottery. But you've still got to get a good start. So you get to get ahead of signs, and then you get and make the overtake on Leclerc as well. And then from that point, flawless really management. You could see at certain points he was trying to maintain a gap and being consistent on the lap times where Leclerc wasn't, and able to then pull away. And even towards the end of that stint, go right. Well, we need the gap because, you know, overcut and undercut is unpredictable in this era. Let's go stretch now. Let's go put out fastest laps 
on that medium tyre. But then I think the the real test came when you have that disappointment of losing your lead from the safety car, fending off Leclerc and then really digging deep and breaking the DRS. I don't think, Brad, every driver on the field would have been able to hold that lead with that car advantage. No, I agree with everything you said. Um, Verstappen won the race and Perez couldn't couldn't make that same impression on the same kind of car that he was chasing. You know, Verstappen decisively took the lead and then controlled it at the front. And, and there was no point watching the timing. There was no point I, I thought his lead was in any danger at all. It, it never really looked like, no. despite Leclerc making a few fastest laps or, you know, coming back at him a couple of tenths occasionally, it was only ever a flash in the pan and then Verstappen would continue to just eat the gap out. And then, like you say, even after the safety car, it was exciting. Yeah. I, I thought there was a chance maybe Leclerc would, would get through, but the moment it settled down, there was like, there was just this point where it was, where it was clear. Okay. It's done. It's the gaps back up to nine tenths. He's just ticked over past a second. Now he's not getting back within the DRS in the DRS zone and that's it. And so Verstappen really just took everything that was thrown at him and was just the stronger package. And, and as you say, it was him that made the difference because you have Perez in an identical car who couldn't make that same okay. crash with oh. the same straight line speed on No, it on wasn't. It wasn't. Of All of Mexico's yelling at you. So to fend off any emails, uh, there was a, a declared power issue with, with Perez. And actually, that there was some sort of a sensor that went wrong and they said, oh, they had to disable that sensor to get it back up and running. But even in the first stint, it, well, I think it was clear that he, he wasn't breezing by signs in the same way that Verstappen was able to breeze by on the straights past Leclerc. No, you're right. No, I'm, I'm doing Perez a disservice there. Actually, I forgot he had this um, reported, was it 27-ish horsepower yeah. um, deficit <laughs> after he had the power problem. Because, because the gap didn't really change so much after that, because it seemed to kind of be, although he'd lost the time, the the gap between science and Perez seemed to say stay the same. I kind of forgot that he had this mm. uh, power deficit, and and we still don't know that for sure. That's, that's what we were told. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. He okay. he was really um he was really done over by by that loss of power. Although his engineer didn't really believe him. Oh no, <laughs> you've just lost the toe. I've just lost the toe seven seconds in a lap and a half. I don't think so. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah, I, I think the data might have been lagging off the car a little bit to his race engineer because it was very obvious if you looked at the lap time after he complained about it that he lost a bucket load of time. But oh, oh, um, well, we should remember, just to defend Perez's engineer as well, that we hear those radio messages late. So yeah. when we were when when he made that call of "Oh, you just lost the toe," it might not have been as obvious to us looking at the timing screens, Brad. I just have to point out, this is really funny because last <laughs> night I was out to dinner with a few race drivers in Brackley, actually, uh, about 30 seconds walk from the Mercedes factory. Nice flex. And and we were there because one of my friends is coaching a GB3 driver, which is essentially like British Formula 3. And he had an issue with his car at Silverstone yesterday where he was, he was losing performance on the straight compared to his teammate. And the first thing the engineer was saying was, it is a driving problem. You're not doing, there's something you're not doing right. And it, it took him, it took him proving it on the data that <laughs> it definitely wasn't a driver issue. It was definitely a car performance thing. And it just, it tickles me because obviously the engineer's first thought is, <laughs> oh no, the driver's talking rubbish. There's no, there can't be anything wrong with the car. It must be the, the bit of meat behind the steering wheel. And I love it's that, always the same. I love that even at the top level, you know, we're now talking about Formula One, those still, those relationships still kind of exist. I'll tell you the, the other area that Verstappen impressed me as well was coming out on the hard tyres. So I was glued to the timing screens because 
well, the race wasn't exactly popping at this point. So I, I was watching it on the timing screens and Leclerc took a little bit of time to get those hards activated. And if you look at Russell's timings at the beginning, see, Matt, I'm in your zone here. I'm in the tyre zone. Russell took a while to, to build up the hard tyre temperature and pace. Hamilton went through like a graining phase where he had a couple of laps, you know, two or three seconds slower. Verstappen was straight on the pace. And whilst I was kind of looking at that hoping, because I'm not a Verstappen fan, I was looking at Leclerc's times going, all right, that's building up. Maybe Ferrari will be better on the harder tyre. Verstappen was just bang on. I think the lap after the outlap, he was straight into the the same kind of times. So I went, well, this is it. He's in control now. It's over. But I don't think I don't think everyone was as good on the cold hearts. No, they weren't. Um, and I think you know, for Mercedes, we heard this at Imola as well, talking to Hamilton, having to keep his hard tire temperatures down around 104 C. And then after a couple of laps, they're like, okay, you can bring him up now because we've worn enough tread off that the heat, some of the heat's going to bleed off down the straights. Well, they already learned that lesson with Russell. And if you recall, when Hamilton exited the pits, he was, I think, fighting with Ricardo, trying to stay ahead of him. So he pushed them hard right out of the gate. And then he suffered a penance for that, having to sit on them and not overheat them while enough tread wore off to where he could push them again. Ferrari, I don't know, uh, hard tire times to me, they were pretty identically matched. Uh, uh, Red Bull might have had the advantage directly out of the pit lane. But listening to them talk in the uh, cool-down room after the race, uh, they, their times were, they were trading tents. They were just mm. nicking tents out of each other back and forth. And it was tantalizing to watch, especially once the safety car brought them back together. But the damage, as you rightly point out, was all done at the beginning of the race on the medium tire. And, um, and it's down to Red Bull, the car, and Verstappen, the driver. Absolutely. And I guess the other final obstacle, uh, Brad, for Verstappen is is losing that that hard one lead when it is tit for tat on the hards. You've earned your advantage, and I, I, in fact, well, this is the other thing. I think I did mention it was the consistency. So we're leaking a little bit into Ferrari here, but Verstappen was setting consistent times on the mediums, and unless he wanted to go for a push lap and, and build up some lead, Leclerc was making a lot of a lot of mistakes. So he would suddenly have a lap that was a second down, two tenths here, four tenths. And it wasn't like the core pace. It was the consistency of that pace as well. Yeah. And I actually noticed a few drivers having similar off laps to, to Leclerc there. Hamilton certainly had it a few times in his chase of Bottas. Um, and I saw other drivers who you'd make a small mistake and they were six tenths to a second down on that lap. This track seemed to really punish you making a small error. So it makes it all the more impressive that Verstappen was able to eke that gap out um, with a car that we've already admitted that isn't potentially quite as nice to drive through some of the corners, through some of the fast, medium speed corners, and still just consistently eke that gap out. And obviously once once that gap is taken away with with the safety car, you've although you could have identical tire life in terms of number of laps to your competitor. Yeah. And I don't I can't remember what the laps difference was between it Verstappen's was tires it was and and Leclerc's, but the fact that you've managed to eat that gap out, you know, you've you've spent some of your tire to do that, and so it you are then at a disadvantage when the race is restarted and the gaps neutralised. The fact that you've pulled out seven seconds or whatever on on your competitor, you know, you've yeah. it, it you are then at a disadvantage because you've taken that little bit more tire life out, and it's not really there's nothing we can do about it. It's just part of racing, but for that driver for Verstappen in that case. 
you, it's not a completely fair fight. You no. Know, you should, you've not got the benefit of that entire life that you've spent anymore. And that's, that's why you rarely see people doing what Schumacher used to do and what Vettel used to do, where Schumacher would just go as fast as possible and lap the entire field. And Vettel would pull out, basically he would go for a, a, a free pit stop gap, say in 2013 when he was dominating. When Mercedes were dominating, you didn't see them do that anymore. And I think that's probably partly down to the fact that we've had an increased amount of safety cars. Safety is a good thing, but they do reach for that safety car awfully, awfully quickly. And we'll, we'll get to the safety car stuff a little bit later. But I think here we're, we're talking about Verstappen versus Leclerc. And that seems to be the title fight right now. And this feels like a really clear indication that you've got Max Verstappen as a as a mature title contender, a veteran of that 2021 campaign. And then you look across at the Ferrari garage and you've got a team that's not used to fighting for championships in recent history. And you've got Leclerc, who is clearly a, a massive talent. But then you go, right, is he a seasoned championship contender? And, and a race like this, that first stint, Red Bull and Verstappen were on it in every single way. But with Ferrari and Leclerc, the core performance was there, but it was just death by a thousand cuts. A little bit here, a little bit there. And that 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 could be the difference this season. Yeah, but I'm slightly less inclined to say that it's Leclerc the driver. And I'm more slightly inclined to say that it's the Ferrari ability on that medium tire. It's just putting him over the edge into that margin where you just, where, yeah, I can do one lap at that. But then the next lap, I'm going to make a mistake. And those mistakes, we saw a huge one, in fact. Didn't he lose like a second or more yeah. going into turn, was it 11? It was the pushy uh, left-hander where a lot of cars seemed to be struggling to get the bite in. Yeah, like he like he was chasing Verstappen and almost in DRS and hanging in there. And then he, like he went to turn in and the car just said, nope, sorry, done with that for a while. I'm going to take a nap. And oof, man. Yeah, you could see. And he said, he said the car was not fun to drive. And I think Red Bull have the it, the balance advantage right now. They understand how to balance the car better and how to balance the tires slightly better than Ferrari. Okay, so well, let, let's play virtual Ferrari manager for, for a little while. Is there anything Ferrari could have done? I think it, safety car aside, looking at that first stint where Red Bull were just eking out the gap through consistency and performance and building up, what was it, a seven-second gap going into the first pit stop, they, they told signs, right, we're going as long as possible. And Leclerc was plan D, whatever that is. I love Ferrari with their plans, by the way. Like, yeah, that is plan 17. Their meetings must be so long of what they're going to do. Uh, is there anything they could have done, Brad? You know, would you, is, is it worth it? We're always like screaming at the TV. Oh, uh, bolt some softs on, move yourself in the grid, shake it up, do, do something. But really the reality is in a kind of one-stop type race like that, is there, is there a lot they can do? Personally, I don't think so. I think... Once the position was lost at the start and it was clear that Leclerc couldn't hang on, you know, very yeah. closely to the back of Verstappen, I think they just did what they could. I, I think that the race was always going to play out exactly as it did. Um, so unless Matt's got some potential other strategy <laughs> no. option, was there a two-stop there that, that would have maybe forced Red Bull's hand? Because it didn't look, Matt, like there was a huge amount of tyre saving particularly going on it looked like both Ferraris were were pretty much pushing trying to keep up yeah well it, it's interesting um actually if I look at the Ferrari uh timings what would what interested me most about this and you can just go to sleep now if this doesn't interest you because <laughs> I'm going to be here a while I promise <laughs> was that 
signs never ran the kind of lap times, fastest lap times that Leclerc did. But that uh, up to but at lap twenty, he was still uh, maybe four seconds off the back of him. So I think I think again, and then and then Leclerc went faster on those. Yeah. And then, or in medium tires. And I, I just wonder, I'm thinking about the Mercedes experience with the hards. I wonder if they just have some temperature issues. And then once enough tread is gone, they can start to push on that tire again. And, and this may be what we're seeing. That's really interesting. That wasn't how I was reading it. I was reading it as, as Leclerc kind of trying to catch up, but lots of mistakes uh, creeping in, almost like he just was just driving beyond himself a little bit. That's that's why I got the impression that he was really pushing. Yeah, well, I mean, he may I'm sure he was pushing looking at those lap times, but what was clear was that Red Bull had him covered the whole time. Mm. Yeah, and this is it. When a team's in the lead like that, you don't you don't always know whether whether they are pushing or whether they're managing a gap. And like Brad says, when you've got like a 5-7 second gap, you have to really think, you go, do I is it worth pushing and, and getting a 20 second gap when all that could be taken away from me in the click of a safety car yeah but why take more chances yeah. than you have to uh, but that does unfortunately matt bring us to to carlos signs because you've pointed out there he didn't have the race pace now for context matt big carlos signs fan so as, cu- as quickly as i jumped to perez's defense when brad so incorrectly didn't talk about his his massive engine deficit a normal driver would have retired, but Checo, he wrestled it to fourth place. I know you're a big Carlos Sainz fan, Matt, and we were kind of arguing on, was it was it FP2 that he had a, the shunt? And yeah. that robbed him of kind of, and and me and Chris were kind of going at you a bit, saying, this is starting to become a little bit of an issue. He's starting to to drop it in races, he's dropping it in practice sessions, it's becoming a little bit of a trend. And here, the the main penalty, although he recovered in qualifying, was a lack of race running, and maybe that's why he never had the pace in the race. No, well, you could point to that, or you could point to the one thing that I didn't really consider, because I was just thinking about how much track running he needed to be competitive on the day, uh, was the fact that he actually sustained some injuries when he crashed his car and was still driving with them on on Sunday. He he, yeah. he was at pains to point out Yes, I have some injuries today. Thank you very much, Concrete Barrier, that I think should be a tech pro. So he also bashed his head, jumping from off track, like just just through a little hole in the fence, cracked his head. And that was that was just before he then went on to have that accident as well. Uh, yeah, I, I saw the video of that. Those things are a lot smaller than you think they are, having seen them in real life. Okay, so Brad clearly signs his cursed. Yeah, he, he had a bit of a, a nightmare in terms of like head injury, minor head injury, which I don't know whether that was the thing that, that affected him, but it definitely doesn't help. Um, and I, I was wondering whether or not he was just in pain putting the helmet on because he had quite a nasty cut under his lovely long dark hair. Um, his beautiful, bleeding down his long. face. Um, but yeah, I think we've, we're definitely seeing a trend now, aren't we? It's it's not just the mistakes where he's you know he's he's spun uh, um, Melbourne and and he crashed in the practice today. It's not just those kind of mistakes. Obviously, um, Imola wasn't really his fault at the start, but he's generally always the one behind in the sessions that count. Yeah, he's so he seems to be able to pull out a fast lap and look like there's promise of matching Leclerc in some of the practice sessions and even in some of the qualifying sessions. But it seems that when it counts, 
he is now consistently we, we've got quite a few data points now yeah and it's always in the same way that it's always Perez behind Verstappen it's always science behind Leclerc Ferrari at the moment and I'm, I think that's potentially how it's going to settle in now that's a possibility I mean I would never have argued on raw pace yeah that that signs was quicker than Leclerc where he has won the race is he has been able to be consistent where Leclerc hasn't and that seems to have deserted him not always his fault I mean certainly you know um getting tagged at the start of Imola was can't really you can't blame him for that but um but what I see is after 20 laps if you're four seconds back you're not really that that far off in Formula One terms we've certainly seen bigger discrepancies between teammates and if he's not yet feeling 100% with a car or if he's you know suffering from injuries then that certainly falls into a window that I would be like, well, okay, he may not be the fastest fast lap, but he might be. He might still yet cons- out consistent Leclerc. I just think if you're if you're going to have any chance of beating Red Bull this year, any any chance of beating the Verstappen Red Bull, you need to be operating on a Leclerc mm-hmm. pace level. You you don't have time to spend ten races getting into it because Verstappen's going to be so far down the road. So I think science is is making his own. I was going to say decisions. He's not deciding to not be quite fast enough, but it's Leclerc is taking the initiative and um, has worked it out and is quick enough to, you know, he's leading the championship, but to, to give Verstappen some trouble whilst Verstappen is the quickest and is winning these races and signs. If if it was signs was the lead driver and they had a second driver slower than signs, Ferrari wouldn't be looking that strong right now. I mean, I think that's a fair point. And also the two Ferrari drivers had to very quickly tussle for who had the right to be the one bringing the fight to Verstappen. I think that is very clearly Leclerc now. If you're Ferrari, you would have to be backing Leclerc as your as your number one driver. And, uh, you know, we're talking about, oh, well, there's Leclerc with the pace and signs with the consistency. Well, well, bad luck because Verstappen's got the pace and the consistency. So you need to sort that out. Which, which one of those two is easier to kind of fix from a... A Ferrari point of view, which one do you take forward in the battle against the Red Bull? I think you're going to go with Leclerc and work on, right, let's get some consistency on there. Let's find you know a place where you're comfortable. Uh, but there's clearly a teammate battle between Leclerc and Sainz. Leclerc plays some lovely little mind games. He gets pole, but he probably sees, I don't know if he can see on the timing screens, that he's only got pole by, what was it, 2.5 seconds. So Sainz is 2.5 tenths. So Sainz is close to him. Leclerc comes on the radio straight away. Uh, it's not a perfect lap, that. Not a perfect lap, but pff, I guess I guess it got the job done. And I, I felt, Brad, from a driver point of view, that was a dig. That's a kind of a dig at Sainz. I'm probably reading too much into it, but it's little things like that that drivers say over the radio to go, well, you know, I would have I would have beaten him by more. So he was even upset it was close. Yeah, uh, I I mean, I, I actually wasn't that close there, was it? Wasn't Sainz over two tenths behind in qualifying? Yeah, but the, like, the, 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 the problem is, because Sainz is popular, the bar gets a little bit lower for what constitutes success coming from behind. So a lot of the, the commentary and a lot of the, the comment in social media was, you know, within 2.5 tenths, which is a little bit damning with faint praise. Yeah, I mean, two, two and a half tenths isn't dramatic, but there are plenty of races where a couple of cars can slot into that gap and you can be mm. fourth quite easily. So um, I don't think science had a, an amazing 
qualifying in that respect. But he also was trying to recover from a loss of confidence from having lost the rear of the car when he wasn't expecting it to happen again. The same as uh, Imola, where he lost it um, when he wasn't expecting to. So it, it was actually probably quite a good performance considering that, because it's quite hard to come back when you're trying to drive. I mean, I've obviously never driven Formula One car, but it, it's difficult to to extract maximum pace out of a car when it's done a thing you didn't expect and you, you might not 100% understand why and you weren't able to catch it to it the could, point where you actually again. had yeah. a painful crash. And yeah, you're always just going to be worried that that's going to happen again. So you won't quite lean on it as hard. So, so yeah, anyway, so, so I'm, I'm not trying to, um, to get on Carlos no, Sainz's no. case. I think he's, he's doing pretty solidly and maybe his luck is going to change quite soon. And there's going to be races where he will be the quicker of the two Ferrari drivers. I just get the feeling that the trend is, is in one direction. It certainly looks that way right now. I just want to make the small signs friendly point that he did <laughs> manage to beat Verstappen's banker time. And that's not a nothing given where he set the bar because Leclerc didn't beat him the first time out either. Did he? No, I know, uh, you know, but Verstappen, he was, he was doing, he was doing really well until lap five and until lap five, I would say that that was one of the greatest ever qualifying laps of all time, Brad, until, until turn five was doing really well that is not a dig at Verstappen that is a dig at all the pundits who are fawning over his 2021 Saudi Arabia uh, lap where he binned it into the into the wall at the final turn um but I think Miami should come under the microscope next many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right. Well, what did we think of it? I had a brief chat with the guys here about what they thought about the Miami race circuit and the Miami event. And one of us is coming down on a more negative side. That's me. And but my two panelists here have come down on a, a positive side. So, Brad, what did you think of the Miami Grand Prix racetrack and event? 
Well, Matt doesn't count because it's his. It's one of his home events. Yeah, exactly. So bias. His yeah. opinion is going to be massively biased. But so I, I'm definitely guilty of, of in the past not really buying into the the American style of sporting event. The the kind of t-shirt cannons and and big hype. But I, I embraced this one. I thought, you know what? Everybody seems to be really getting into this. We're having a massive build up. There's a lot of people really excited. So I'm just going to kind of go with the flow with that and and really kind of soak up all, all the media attention that this event is getting. And so I paid a lot of attention. I tried to watch all of the content that came out this weekend. I watched the W Series races. I was trying to watch everything to do with this event and, and even try and understand who some of the celebrities were. Um, and I think <laughs> I even knew a couple more than, than Martin Brundle did, judging by that grib walk. That was horrible. And, um, <laughs> Good on him, and but I, that was horrible. And I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought the track layout was much more conducive to racing than I first expected. I thought we had quite a lot of overtakes. I know uh, some of this is, is obviously down to a strategy, but Russell mm. managed to come through quite a long way through the pack. There were lots of, there were opportunities to pass that were not available at Imola. And I know we can probably argue that that's partly because Imola was damp <sighs> offline, so it's harder yeah. to overtake anyway. But regardless, there were, you could overtake at this track if I, the situation I'm, was I'm right. worried about you using Imola as the bar for overtaking. You know, Imola, which is a track that has sneaked back in under the, you know, the pandemic as an emergency measure, had a decent wet race, and now everybody thinks we should be at Imola forever. I mean, that shouldn't be the bar for, for whether it's a good race or not. Yeah, okay, I guess so. It's just because that's the most recent thing you know, in my memory. But I just thought that it was possible to overtake and I've watched formula one to see races yeah. where, yeah, where there is, it's impossible to overtake. So I quite enjoyed the layout. I enjoyed the excitement. I enjoyed the, the colors. I, I didn't hate the pretend, um, Harbor. <laughs> no, I, I quite enjoyed that too. In the same way that you have themed areas at a theme park. I don't really think the old mine shaft, ride at disneyland is a real mine shaft you know it's <laughs> doesn't have point. to be real it's, really it's, it's a theme it's you know they, they're kind of going with this kind yeah. of seaside bright blue kind of theme and i also heard they were selling you know it's like a yacht sales place they were selling some of those yachts. you know it's mm. kind of i thought they did it well and i yeah. enjoyed it and I, especially in the kind of given the the space constraints they had the only thing that fell flat for me was the race just didn't happen to ignite we were lucky we had the safety car but as an event I enjoyed the whole weekend and I watched every session and I think I watched every lap of every session and, and I, I had a good time. Yeah. Well, I hate to say it, but I liked the track. I liked the tight twisty go-kart bits. It was a lot of fun to see the drivers go through there. And I like the errors that the track generated amongst the drivers in the race and, and in qualifying. I, I it seemed like it was a pretty challenging track to get round, but I'll tell you the thing that really grabbed my attention was that um, I looked at the race about lap 37 and I thought, no one's been lapped. But then Latifi got lapped. So I was like, okay, Latifi's been lapped. But I think he might have been the only car that was lapped before the safety car. And I looked, I said, well, well it must all be DRS trains, right? No, nope. I mean, either everyone's just like, oh, I'm just going to sit two seconds behind everybody else, lap after lap after lap. Or there was something about this track that simply kept the leaders, and this is what made made it kind of interesting, it kept the leaders from getting anyone really clear of their pit windows for the longest of times. 
Ooh, and and yeah. that that is going to wind up creating some very interesting results, I, I think, uh, if we continue to come back here. Ah, oh, no. So you two are being super positive. Now I'm gonna now I'm gonna seem like the grumpy one, and I, I don't have any objection to to the the razzmatazz or anything like that. Uh, my lad had missed all the build up to it. And at about lap 40, he went, hang on, is that fake water? So, you know, for someone who didn't, who missed all the the hype and the complaining about it, he only noticed right at the end. It's like, yeah. And he just went like, why? And I went like, well, I guess they thought it would look cool. And, I, you know, maybe it does. My, my problem is that this is, this is just another street track. And by street track, I guess I mean a temporary circuit. You know, it's got another use, and they they've put it up for for this race. They've done a good job for a street track, but call me call me weird. I like racing on race tracks, and I don't think the I think these cars are designed for racing on race tracks. And when you go on a street track, it's always a compromise. So, did they compromise well? I, I think we predicted that the twisty section would string people out into the overtaking zones and i felt like it kind of it did to an extent george russell suggested removing that twisty bit the go-kart bit as you call it matt and just making that into a a turn i think i would agree with that i think they've fallen into the trap of a lot of temporary layouts where they say we need something intricate and technical so that it isn't just a couple of turns and some big long straights. And I think like every street track, if it doesn't have a big long straight where they can overtake with DRS, there's not much else to it. So I, I wasn't impressed with, with the track at all. Uh, am I being too grumpy about the layout, Brad? Maybe. Uh, maybe some of the enjoyment I had was from seeing how difficult drivers were finding, yeah. were finding and, and some of the mistakes they were making. Because it felt like everybody... To me, it felt like everyone was just a half a meter breaking point away from walking the car to the barrier. It just didn't happen that often in the race. Mm. Bottas made it to the wall, and, but yeah. there wasn't really a whole lot else. I was convinced, I tweeted before the race that and I was pretty confident someone was going to go in the wall on the exit of uh, the final corner before the really, really long back straight yeah. um, after the twiddly bit. And apart from a couple of minor brushes, I don't, actually don't think anyone did, but I really thought in the heat of battle, someone would push too hard, clatter the wall. I mean, it's a testament to how well the drivers drove, to be honest, because you had a lot of marbles, you had kind of fine, gritty gravel, you had very low grip offline. And actually, even when racing, the vast majority of the time, people managed yeah. to keep it out of the barrier. But I thought it would be very easy for for that not to have been the case, and for us to have had a maybe slightly messy, but maybe very interesting and strategic uh, multiple safety car race, mm. or at least, you know, more yellow flags and stuff. And so, I, I saw people battling. There were, there were cars side by side with other cars, going for moves, occasionally bouncing off each other, but there was racing. It wasn't a procession, even if it wasn't particularly exciting because maybe because the the race for the lead was quite well settled. If I say it's my favourite temporary track or my favourite street circuit, I mean, that again, it's a low bar, but given that that's their constraint that they're working with, it's probably now my favourite. It's the street circuit I dislike the most. No, dislike the least. That's the one. So I suppose that's a pretty good bar uh, to be on. I'd, I'd like it though, Brad, if you could explain marbles a little bit. Why was it a particular issue here? Well, marbles are always an issue on well on any track, but in particular on street circuits because you've got walls that are kind of preventing the the little rubber ah, marble from the tires from being thrown too far from the track. So 
in general, they tend to, they tend to stay in more of a, a close proximity to the racing surface because they bounce off the walls and come back. They can't go very far. But we had the added problem here that the track surface, for, for reasons that Matt can probably fill us in on, um, was oh, yeah. breaking up a little bit. Uh, wasn't didn't have the same integrity that some other asphalt surfaces have, particularly at the beginning of the weekend. So a kind of fine, gritty gravel was was being spread away from the racing line, which I'm sure they I'm sure they periodically cleaned up. Um, but it just meant that there was more more kind of gritty, not very grippy um, detritus off the racing line. Because obviously you're cleaning the racing line all the time. And so when drivers went slightly wide or tried a slightly different line or, or were in a position to overtake someone, you're okay. having to drive on that stuff. You're having to drive on, on that dirty, marbly, slippery area. And it was just really making it difficult to, to confidently go for those moves or to, or to vary your lines. But yeah, on a street track, it's, it's okay. always ah, okay. more of a problem. So fix it. How do we fix it? Well, they did try and fix the, the asphalt in places. So I think Matt, Matt was saying to me just before the show that um, someone had spilled some hydraulic fluid on, on the track surface, I think maybe prior to the weekend and, and in the pressure washing or during the weekend, maybe. Yeah, so maybe the, a track one cleaning vehicle. Yeah, uh, one of the cleaning machines. Yeah. So that, that's ironic. So one of the machines out there trying to clean the surface <laughs> has, has thrown a load of fluid down, which then damaged the surface, which has oh. made it easier to break apart. Um, but yeah, how to fix it? Maybe slightly different um, different asphalt or maybe lay the asphalt earlier so that you're not worried about all the uh, all the resin still being there when Formula One descends. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay, look, and, and this is this was slightly my concern that, you know, was the track completely ready to go? I mean, broadly, it's put on an event. The the concern I have for F1's general health is the same one I have for Monaco. Monaco is one of the most hyped and it's one of the most advertised and therefore brings in the the most amount of new viewers. Then they watch Monaco and go, oh, is that F1, is it? Miami was massively, massively hyped. So therefore, you've got to deliver something. I would like to see that amount of hype go into Silverstone. And then pe- the new people finding it see F1 on a racetrack and see what F1 is all about. This race risked being a procession it was saved a little bit by the late late safety car but that could have been kind of bad pr for for f1 but i'm just a bloke in a shed um, that's that's the f1 pr department's problem but yeah so look it survived the the track this survived so i don't think we need to go too much more into that what we will go into next i think is is mercedes was the next team on the call sheet here for us but i think we can lead into that with the safety car because the safety car in the end didn't really affect the front battle we've covered that Verstappen was able to to win that and stay ahead. Great start on the restart, by the way, to just get away completely cleanly. Uh, show, showed uh, showed Leclerc a clean set of heels from the safety car, and then Perez just wasn't armed to take the battle to to signs in the end. But it did affect people down the midfield, uh, Matt. So from a tactical point of view, this safety car was very interesting. Well, it was because we had some people. I'm going to say the name Russell. You say the name Ocon, and interestingly enough, both Vettel and Stroll, who for different reasons failed to benefit fully from it, all starting uh, out of position. Ocon, obviously no qualifying at the back. Vettel and Stroll, they had a fuel temperature problem, 
which benefited Alonzo at the start because he had some clean grid spots to drive forward into that not all the drivers did, which is why he was up driving into the back of Hamilton at the start. Um, and once we got to the first round of pit stops for everyone on the medium tire, there was sort of this pause. And then uh, Russell came on the radio and the team yeah. said, well, what do you want to do? And he's like, well, I'm on the hard tires. They're running representative lap times. I think we stay out and see if we get a safety car or a virtual safety car. And lo and behold, our friend uh, Lando Norris slightly misjudges the situation with Gasly. And here comes the virtual safety car. And so those people who had run deep into the race without pitting had gained a bucket full of places. I think Ocon had gained 10. He'd gained about 10. So, and, and Vettel and Stroll were in that same position, except for, for various reasons. They hang got hang on, who, did you, whose fault did you say that argument was? That, that, that collision was? Uh, uh, Vettel and Schumacher? No, or you were talking, Ga- talking Gasly and, uh, didn't you mention oh. Gasly and Norris? And Norris, yeah. You're blaming I, I, Norris? I right, time to play a game. Whose fault is it? Okay, so this caused the safety car. That kind of I, slid by under the radar, you saying that. You're actually, you're blaming Norris for that. Actually, I have to be technically uh, correct here. Alonso hitting Gasly started the events that caused the safety car when Norris hit Gasly. But yes, in the Norris-Gasly collision, I think, I'm, I'm, I think it's, it's totally on Norris. You have Gasly who was running in the top 10 and suddenly he's down at P16 or whatever. And you're going around him and you're like, Oh, I see him looking in the mirrors. He must be racing me after he dropped 10 straight positions in half a lap. And I'm thinking, well, no, that's not really the case. He's probably just trying to get to the pits without hitting anybody. Which he, he failed spectacularly to do because he <laughs> did hit Norris. I, so when this first happened, obviously, I wanted to get a gauge on, on whose fault it was because I had a, a small suspicion that this might feature in, in this part of the show. And it looked pretty clear to me that Gasly just wandered into the path of Norris. If you are the slower car, so first of all, to address Matt's points about this being um, Norris's fault, Norris isn't looking at Gasly's position. Norris is driving his own race. He's not looking at a specific ticker showing Gasly dropping down through the field. He's just driving the race that's in front of him. And Gasly, it's, it's on him. If he's got a slowing, injured race car, it's on him to stay the heck out of everyone's way. And he just failed to do that in that particular point. It wasn't huge. He didn't swerve across the track, but he wandered to the left in a place where obviously cars were going past him on his left. And so Gasly failed to stay safely out of the way and caused the accident. And it was bizarre because out of all the crashes we could have had this weekend, I don't know we had a couple in in earlier in the weekend, but in the race, of all the, the accidents that could have happened with drivers smashing into walls and, you know, making a mistake, you know, so it's not weird. like Latifi just losing control and, and hitting a barrier. We didn't have any of that. We had a really clumsy, unnecessary was contact it on the track when both cars were facing the same direction and it was, it was nothing to do with the barriers. It was just Gasly wandering across the track. It was pretty much on a straight. I've got some sympathy with what, what Matt was saying because at first I went, well, why, why did Norris take such a kind of a, a tight, line and like he wasn't really needing to fight him until i went onto the gasly on board and gasly's like talking you don't know if these radio messages are in sync but you hear him going well i can't turn but then coming out of the corner just before the collision you see him like put a lot of power down and he's trying to get to the pits but he's put a lot of power down and kind of basically washed out so it seemed kind of unnecessary you're you're limping home get over to the right stick your hazards on we've already spoken about why 
Norris wouldn't have wanted to go miles offline. Yeah, like, yeah. But it's dirty, and there's no need to, you know, because as long as the car, as long as Gasly stays safely to one side, Norris, Norris did compromise his line. He did drive around him. It's just that they met in the middle because Gasly wandered yeah. unpredictably into his path. I agree with everything you say, except for Gasly was driving an obviously wounded car and Norris just didn't quite give him enough berth when, when push came to shove. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, that's just a disagreement we're probably never going to get over. <laughs> it, it wasn't so wounded that he couldn't just stay to the right. You know, he managed to navigate the previous yeah, corner. He, he, he just needed to, to apply he was a little bit far more to the right, right I would say. There okay. was more room to Norris's left than to Gasly's right. Oh, now we'll need a still frame of that. So feedback at mistapex.net, because I think that is one where you would have to get your, your go, go to your local Lawn Green Bowls club and borrow their little tape measure, because I think that's what we'd have to do there. I didn't realise it was quite related to the Alonso dive bomb. Yep. So is that probably what caused the damage to Gasly yep. that stopped him being able to turn? But this is a bit of a in-car radio politics that Alonso did. that I'm sure you'll appreciate, Brad, because... Mr. Apex karting event, yeah. So I'm comparing my karting thing that happened to me specifically to F1 drivers. It's basically the same. But uh, one of our listeners, I was up the inside of him into a right-hander. I think he's not seen me. I could, if I back out, that's fine. But I could stay where I am. He's not seen me. So if I stay here, he's definitely going to turn in and hit me. But it'll be his fault, kind of. But I'm the only one who could have stopped the accident. Whilst I was thinking all that, I stayed exactly there. He cut across me. He ended up spinning. I hit him, and then I hit him again trying to get past. My immediate reaction, and sorry about that uh, other Brad at the karting, sorry for hitting you twice, was to play to the marshals immediately. And I think you you taught me this, Brad, that if you're a kart track and you're in your own race suit and the other guy's in a rental suit, you have to gesticulate and look fed up. Like, what an idiot. I can't believe he's done that. And then the marshals will tend to favour you. And I think Alonso uses that in a way because he's a two-time world champion. He's a veteran of the sport and he was fully playing to the stewards, but it didn't work this time. Yeah, so I actually don't remember this specific incident with Alonso on Gasly. I'm sure I saw it, but quite a lot of stuff then happened immediately afterwards. So it it hasn't stayed logged in my mind. So Matt might have to describe it. I think it was coming into turn one, uh, possibly on a safety car restart. Or, or before, in lap 39, it was he had a DRS run on Gasly and had been trying to get round him. He came up the inside, but from really far behind. And yeah. my impression, if I was Alonzo, is he thought Gasly was leaving. Gasly knew he was there and was leaving him room. And then he started to turn and Alonzo realized, oh, he doesn't know I'm there or he's going to close the door. Alonzo locks up and just absolutely tags the the right rear of gas of Gasly's car. Maybe I have it backwards. I oh, don't know. So it's actually, how long ago was this race? It's, it's actually very similar. If you want to compare it to the Magnussen stroll incident later in the race, Brad. So we can play that as a whose fault it is. We will get to Mercedes in a in a second. But Mercedes, uh, sorry, Magnussen was on the inside of Stroll, and and it it kind of looked on the surface like maybe it was another Stroll not checking his mirrors thing. But basically, uh, Magnussen went for a move up the inside. Stroll just didn't react to it and and probably rightly turned and went for the apex. Magnussen suddenly realised he wasn't going to make it and just washes out and, and collects Stroll. So the Magnussen-Stroll one, just so I'm getting this correct, that was a, a, a different corner. It was a left-hander, is that right? Yes, Because that's there right. was yeah, yeah, that's another right, yes. Haas on 
we, we've got a lot of whose fault is it? Yeah. There was another hash on Aston Martin, which was Schumacher on Vettel. On the right-hander, which yeah. Which was at turn one, which is how I'm picturing the Alonso-Gasly crash. So anyway, there was quite a lot of this drivers going for a move up the inside and the driver on the outside turning towards the apex like they weren't there. And I don't know whether maybe some of that was because the driver on the outside didn't want to compromise their line and go slightly wider because it's so dirty and then they'd really go wide. Whereas on an ordinary track, maybe they would just yeah. give that bit of space so both cars can survive. But there were several incidents, and it sounds like these are three of them we're talking about now, where the only person who could have avoided contact at the point of contact was the car on the outside yeah. turning in. All they needed to do was leave that car width. Just don't go all the way to the apex. Leave enough room for Alonso or Schumacher or Magnussen to exist. But they didn't. In every instance, they tried to take an apex and they guaranteed a crash. Was it in one of the practice sessions where Perez did like a practice overtake on signs and just locked up and, and shot off the track? I'm wondering if this is a track where, right, we've said, because you go offline and there's a lot of marbles offline, if you go up the inside and then that move is no longer on, it's very hard to abort because you've already kind of committed. And we saw Perez trying to overtake signs after the safety car as well. And he actually completely overshot. You felt like he, he didn't actually need to break that late to get the move done. Well, yeah, I, I remember um, we were very fortunate on F1 TV to have John Watson commentating. And he did mention that it was a track that featured a lot of trail braking. And when you're braking and turning with a tire at the same time, you're usually very, very close to using 100% of its available grip and then add a slightly slippery surface to that. And you're going to see some of the stuff like what we saw today. So I guess we probably don't have time to go into detail in all of those situations of all those crashes no, let's we've spoken generally, about. Yeah. But, but one thing I just wanted to point out just to head this, um, this fault finder off at the past, because I know some people use this uh, as a way to assign blame. Mm -hmm. in, in each of these examples, or certainly some of them, the uh, overtaking driver, the driver on the inside, locked a wheel. And I've heard even the stewards use that as an excuse to penalize that driver saying, well, they locked up, so they were out of control. But that really isn't the case. The, the lockups that you see in that situation are almost always, and certainly today, the driver on the inside thinking, oh, wow, they're going to just turn in on yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to try and avoid contact. And they just, they're applying additional braking pressure that they, they wouldn't have done in the move normally if that outside car, the turning in car, was looking like they were going to leave enough room. So they just, the, the attacking car just go, just jams the brakes on at the last minute to try and avoid contact. And in that situation, it seems like they're the only one attempting to avoid contact. So I think it's a bit unfair to then use that lockup, that puff of, of tire smoke as a way of saying, well, you were out of control because you locked up. Because and, it's not really that way around. And, but, and I wonder if, if th there are different tracks where in that same scenario, you would have a little bit more grip and you'd have a bit more braking grip to get out of that situation. So you could make the move and go, it's not going to happen. So I'll, I'll, I'll apply more brake and let the the car in front have the apex and perhaps this was a track where i mean we saw a lot of drivers do it and these are some of the best drivers in the world so so yeah so maybe it was a track circumstance we should get to uh mercedes because a lot of interesting stuff off stuff there i mean the dynamic between george russell and the team and lewis hamilton in the team i think we got some more clues and some more peaks behind the curtain i think the first thing to say is that george russell certainly earned that fifth, fifth place, very decisive on what he wanted to do. And I think it's also fair to say 
that he he managed the hard tire well and was able to take advantage of a gamble and it is a gamble because had he had there not been a safety car he might have finished a couple of places behind where he might ordinarily have done on a normal pit strategy but he made that call and i think george russell at this point you could probably say he's he's a a more seasoned midfield driver than his more experienced teammate because those are the sort of coin flip jensen button on intermediate type calls that you're used to making in the midfield to go and get points to go and get a cheeky podium so I don't know, Brad, like he's when those situations come in, he's so tuned into, I know what could maximize my result. I know what gamble to take. So maybe, but I don't think that's the case today. So I think a lot of people are going to heap a ton of praise on Russell for for taking charge of his strategy and making that call, which won him the fifth place. And Russell obviously did a great job. You know, he 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 did exactly what he needed to do today to get that position. But in reality, when you're out in kind of no man's land, lapping on decent lap times on your hard tires. It was the only sensible thing to do. You know, when Russell suggested that to the team, I'm sure the team had already decided that because they immediately said a firm. It wasn't like they had to think about it and go, oh, actually, George, what a brilliant idea. Let me just chuck that back to the strategy team and see what they think. It was just a no brainer. So Russell didn't come up with some amazing strategy there. It was the clear and obvious strategy that anyone would do. Well, we, yeah. Hamil- Hamilton would have done that same thing in that same situation, I'm sure. There was nothing to lose from that point. So it's very different. If you had that same situation, but you were in, the, in deep in a podium battle, first, second and third, that would have been a harder call to make. Exactly. And, and then obviously the situation that transpired with the timing of the safety car, once again, similar to, to Australia, clearly then didn't benefit Hamilton. And they did have a decision to make because they had the option of pitting for softs. Um, and I don't know, Matt, we spoke earlier. I don't know whether they had mediums to go for. Maybe they thought softs were fine because there's not that many laps left, 14 laps or so. Um, but they were almost certainly going to lose track position to Russell. Although I've seen some tweets during the show where people are suggesting that actually they probably could, if they'd reacted soon enough, they could have probably pitted Hamilton and he would have been out ahead of Russell on those softs. They were used softs because Hamilton obviously went all the way through to Q3. So he, he didn't have any um, any brand new softs remaining, but they would have been pretty pretty fresh. But anyway, they could have pitted him and potentially lost track position to George, or they could have stayed out and not lost track position, but you have a, a hard charging, yeah. fresh, medium tire shod George Russell behind. I really feel like unless we're wrong and they could have got him out in front of Russell... He was really between a rock and a hard place. There was no, from that point onwards, there was no way in my mind that Hamilton was ever finishing in front of Russell, regardless of what strategy call they made. Um, so to, to run through the same points, uh, yeah, if you, I think Russell was running in fifth place when the incident happened. Yeah, and without a stop, yeah. If, if you recall me mentioning how tight the race was, I think if he did it, he did come out between maybe 13th, 14th, 15th place. Um, so yeah, if he pitted when they said, do you want to pit? He, he was going to lose enough places that he might've been lucky to get back to a single point at the end of the race. So that I think was a very easy decision. And all the runners who had gained points positions made the same decision there with regards to Hamilton. He just got done wrong by the racing gods, in my opinion, because Russell came out behind him, was ahead of him. 
came out behind him. So I don't know how at that point, if he pitted it on the same time as Russell did, he's not going to get out ahead of Russell. He's still, he's still going to be behind him. The only way, the only way he could get position on Russell was to stay out while Russell came in. And the decision then is, do I take the track position or do I lose a position and hope that I can overtake him in the minimum amount of laps left? Well, I think the idea also is like he, he could have come out on softs. I guess that would have been the other option. Brad. So I, I've had some screenshots sent to me showing that at the time, uh, during that whole safety car, virtual safety car period, it was about a 12-second gap that Hamilton had once Russell had made his stop and he'd come out behind, you know, having a, a, a beneficial stop under, mm. under those conditions, you know, losing less relative time to the other cars. Hamilton, there was a 12-second gap, but I think that 12 seconds not enough even under virtual safety car for Hamilton to have got back in and, and still maintained that position. So I think he was always coming out yeah. behind Russell. Yeah. So yeah, I think, you know, obviously Russell's you know, had a rub of the green there and, and they've gone for that and, and they've got it. So, you know, you miss, you miss all the shots you don't take. So not taking anything away from Russell at all. Uh, the, the fact of the fact that has stuck in my craw has been the dynamic between the team and Lewis Hamilton and the way Hamilton has reacted to that. So we, you have to go back a little bit, but we've seen Hamilton disappear when he's had a midfield car before. It's not that he's not a good driver. It's, you know, how much, how much do you want it in those positions? How much are you adapted to racing in those positions? How much can you deal with? And I'm sure, Brad, you can relate to this. It's a different energy fighting for the lead than it is scrapping for, for seventh or, or eighth, eighth place. And I, I've heard you, I've heard you in tournaments say, you know, it, it didn't feel great, you know, battling for, for 10th position or whatever. But the dynamic when they had the decision to make of the team saying, do you want to come in? And at this point, Hamilton's head's already down. You know, if, in, to my mind, you can only control what you control. And he's had two safety cars that have put his younger teammate ahead of him, which can't feel great. But that's nothing you did. As Matt said, you know, that is the racing gods. They've bestowed that. He then comes on and says, well, you shouldn't ask me. You're the ones who know. But that's not really how it's worked out for the strategists at Mercedes. When they've made a decision that hasn't worked out, Hamilton has been pretty severe on the radio. Like, oh, we shouldn't have done that, man. We shouldn't have done that. And that becomes kind of a, a management issue. I'm a Hamilton fan. Please don't, please don't shoot me. But that becomes a management issue, Brad, where perhaps his his less prestigious teammates in the strategy department feel like if I get this wrong, I'm going to get a, a kick in. And then that makes them want to throw the decision to Hamilton to check he'll be happy. And then he's turned around and said, well, don't ask me. This is this is your job. So I, I understand what you're saying. Mm. The way I see it, Hamilton has dug Mercedes out of many a poor strategy hole sure and they have relied on him in the past when the car has been more competitive to basically get them back to a position that they shouldn't have ever had to get back to and there have been a number of times where where he has probably felt like he his trust in the strategy team has been misplaced and so i can understand him getting frustrated with them. But that does then confuse the situation when you have a situation like today where they are asking him for his input and, and in, in his mind, and I think today justifiably in his mind, he's saying, well, I don't have all the information for that. He, 
he doesn't have the the big picture in that situation today to be able to say yes okay yeah mm. soft now because he doesn't know how many positions he's going to lose he he doesn't know that russell's earlier strategy call or conversation was a much simpler yeah. thing when this safety car came out it's obviously unexpected hamilton doesn't immediately know all the relative gaps how the race is going to play out he does need the team in that situation to just tell him and i think if they told him consistently how it was instead of trying to lean on him so much if they just told him and got it right then he would build trust in them and we wouldn't be having this conversation i think the problem is when they have in the past told him do this lewis yeah quite often it's been wrong so i can't blame him for for not quite trusting them but also in this situation, needing them, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's a it's a bit of a tricky situation, and it definitely it didn't sound like a confident pit wall, did it? You know that that's you know in 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 some of the other teams they just say this is this is what's happening, but they don't have someone with as much clout as Hamilton to deal with. Yeah. So at the end, so when the decision was made, they said, "Well, we yeah we advise staying out." But if they'd led with that, if they'd come on the radio and said, "Lewis, here's the situation." we can either do this and this will happen or this and this will happen. What do you want to do? At least he could have then made mm. a, an informed decision. As it happened from what we heard, they just, they asked him quite an ambiguous yeah. question. And <laughs> yeah, it, it either needs to be give him all the information or make and the then decision. let him choose yeah. or make the decision for him. And, and don't, don't kind of beat around the bush, do it, be decisive and work that strategy. You've got a whole team of strategists. You're paying lots of people to make these decisions. And it feels like sometimes Mercedes don't even have a strategy department. It's like it is one guy with a notepad. Gosh. It's simple. They asked him the wrong question. And they should have said, Lewis, do you want to come in for fresh tires, but you'll lose a position to Russell? Or do you want to stay out on old tires and defend? Because that's where we are right now. Because I think that that's his decision to make. Strategist doesn't know which one he's going to prefer because he's an experienced seven-time world champion. But they didn't ask him that question, did they? They were just like, eh, you want to come in or not? And he's mm. like, how should I know? I want the magic strategy that gets me fresh tires and keeps me in front of Russell. You're not telling me which, what, what's going to happen if I do either thing. And I, I think he was kind of right to be a little bit miffed that, that they were, uh, to me, blasé about hitting him up uh, for that decision without giving him, as Brad says, the correct information. Pit Delta's 18 seconds. It's, uh, you've got 12 seconds on Russell. If we give you fresh tires, you're going to have to pass him. Which do, you, which do you want? And as soon as he knew that, he said, I don't want to give up position. They're like, beautiful. That's kind of what we think anyway, so stay out. Okay, so you're both being quite sort of pro-Hamilton there. I, what I, the, the thing that stopped me being pro-Hamilton in this situation was then in the pen in the interviews he then continued with that same line and i think it it doesn't show a great relationship between him and the pit wall and i, I would i would i would what i would wish for that to be better uh, but also uh, bear in mind we are playing uh, armchair strategist we're enjoying doing that and if you're in a team screaming at us because we're so wrong and naive that's completely fine you know we we are water cooler pundits um, but do feel free to get in touch uh, spanners at mistapex.net matt at mistapex.net or feedback at mistapex.net brad last point on this um i, I think uh, all i was going to say was just in response to your your last point was that 
maybe the relationship between Hamilton and his strategy department at Mercedes may already have been less good. You know, we might have already got to this point had he not managed to salvage particular results in the past that might have gone missing. Although having said that, plenty of them he didn't manage to salvage. You know, I'm sure I can remember a Monaco that was thrown away through Mercedes um, ineptitude in the strategy department. I'm going to just say it's it's happened enough times. 2015, I think, is the one that you're probably going to point to. 2015 where uh, Rosberg ended up in front of him and he wasn't he wasn't very happy and that that was um that was on a call on a on a pit wall call I think a couple of positive things before we go into the awards Matt Ocon and Albon probably the the standouts of the midfield Yes well once we get if we're going to call Mercedes not a midfield team we'll ignore Russell and we'll say that our friend Ocon and and I'm not that I'm anti Alonso <laughs> but he did he did start at the very very back and he did drive all the way to eighth position, mainly by doing what Russell did, which is just staying out forever on the hard tire, getting the benefit of the uh, lucky or perhaps inevitable, given the circuit, virtual safety car coming in. They put him on the soft tire, which went all the way to the end. But interestingly, he was kind of stuck behind a Schumacher in a battle with them had a really good move, Schumacher defended hard, and Vettel came by, and this is one of my favorite instances. And so now he's actually lost a position, chases him down the straight, and then watches Vettel turn into Schumacher and take the both of themselves out. And I can only imagine the look on his face as he just went through the corner and Freebies, said, man. Oh, well, thank you very much, gentlemen. I, I certainly appreciate that. Yeah, and nothing, nothing better than freebies. Uh, so, But Ocon looked very positive all throughout the weekend even after even after the the qualifying incident or no sorry the practice incident which he he put down to himself i heard yeah. him saying like that's not a, the kind of mistake i usually make but you know it's a bit of an error generating track so but he you know he just held his hand up and just said you know i made that mistake and then got his head down and i guess maybe not being in park ferme let them do the odd thing as well but yeah really good performance yeah, I mean, there was some drama late uh, when they wanted they wanted him to slow down and back up Albon so that Alonso wouldn't lose a place to him because Alonso was already driving around with a five-second penalty. <laughs> and he, he, he was immediately not in favor of this, thinking he'd get overtaken. And so his engineer, they talked a bit, and then eventually he goes, well, how many laps are left? And they, they were like, three. He's like, okay, we'll see what we can do. It was all for nothing because, as we've discovered while the show has been recording, Alonso picked up another five-second oh, penalty. So that means that Albon actually went all the way to P9 from P18 and has picked up two more points for Williams. Okay, so hang on a minute. How, what did Alonso get the penalties for? Hitting Gasly, even though he tried to protest and be political. What was the other penalty yeah. for? Um, going off track and gaining an advantage, for which oh. he was investigated twice and apparently penalized once. Ah, that's interesting. So, uh, actually, I wanted to talk about that uh, with you as well, Brad. What did you think of handing the place back? But then, so Russell had to hand the place back. They decided, and this wouldn't have been like a protest from Hamilton or anything, but basically, if they didn't get Russell to swap back positions with Hamilton, they risked race control, uh, giving Russell a penalty for overtaking off track. So they decide to do that. Russell puts himself in the DRS zone and then immediately overtakes not a problem between teammates but that kind of thing could end up happening for for the lead at some point you know what what do we what do we think should there be more of a more of a penalty than being allowed to just 
plonk yourself back in the DRS? Um, I'm, I'm slightly on the fence with that one. Um, I think in this situation, it was pretty clear that Mercedes should have probably ordered that swap back much earlier. Sooner, yeah. Rather, yeah, rather, I mean, it ultimately didn't matter. He, Russell wasn't going to gain another position, but in another situation, maybe he would have, um, because I think he was catching Perez uh, at that point. Once he was, you know, he got past Hamilton and then kind of drove away for a bit. And I was thinking all the time, well, I mean, if race control decide to independently look into this and say that, that wasn't on, they could just be getting a needless penalty here where mm. if they just immediately said, oh, George, we, we've got the potential to pick up a penalty here. Just swap back. You're going to immediately get Lewis back again anyway. That seemed like a more sensible thing to do. I thought the most surprising thing was how long they left it. So, um, but yeah, I, it, it can happen for the lead. Um, we've seen in the past, a long, long time ago, Hamilton losing out to, was it Raikkonen at Spa? Massa. Wasn't it no, Massa? Ma- Massa went on to benefit from oh, right. Hamilton not allowing Raikkonen back through enough. And, and that was at least, he let him fully through. He just immediately repassed him, but it was deemed that it was too soon. But two, anyway. 2008, yeah. wasn't it? Listen to us old sweats harking back to races 15 years ago. I think that, that brings us to to the awards. The, uh, the, uh, no, in fact, everything that is left in my notes can be attributed to an award. And unless Matt has something else to say, I'm going to press the podium button. Verstappen stamping his authority on the 2022 season, looking every bit uh, the 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 contender for the 2022 championship. I nearly said maintaining his championship. I nearly accidentally said claiming his first world championship. All those things are in the past. He is world champion, and he could be world champion again. In to my eyes, it is theirs to lose now, and the others have to do something drastic to catch up with Red Bull and Max Verstappen, who just seem to have everything in the right spots. Ferrari have the potential, but they're not doing the things. They're not doing all the things all the time. They're doing some of the things great, but Red Bull and Verstappen are doing all the things good all the time, except when they suddenly don't. But they've not broken down for several races now, so Ferrari cannot rely on the tactic of just waiting for Red Bull to fall down. But this is the part of the show where we give out some awards. A good thing, a bad thing, and then we'll we'll get on out of here because it's uh, it's one o'clock. You still awake, Brad? Just about. I just noticed just your got... eyes drooping a little bit there. Yeah, and I have a very, very early start on track testing tyres as well. So Okay, uh, don't don't tell your bosses. Uh, it's at Bradley Philpot on Twitter. That's correct. Yep. Um, and you can also search for Brad Philpott on YouTube if you'd like to see videos of me driving stuff fast or teaching people how to drive stuff fast. Yeah, there we go. And uh, we'll go to you first then for the awards, Brad. What was your thing of the weekend? So a good thing award is probably quite an easy one to go for, but it's America embracing Formula One in a way that I never thought would ever happen. I went to a NASCAR race. I went to the Daytona 500 in... 1995 uh, I went to Daytona 500 in 1997 both of those times none of the fans in the grandstand that I spoke to had the first idea what Formula One was they Mm. didn't have the foggiest idea what this thing was I was trying to talk to them about but now I don't think that's the case I think pretty much everybody um, that's watches TV will know that F1 exists at least and and lots of people will 
will know a lot about Formula One. So yeah. America embracing it. A rising tide raises all ships, and it might be a little bit jarring to some of the old sweats in, in Europe to have a, such a big influx all at once. But as I, as, I, as I said to the New York Post, Matt, in an interview that I did with them, go and, go and read what I said there, in nine months, in a year, two years, all, all those new fans will know 90%, 95% of what all the, the current old fans know. So there's no point being all snobby about it. We've got a big influx of fans. Let's be welcoming because they are us. Before you know it, they know all the stuff we know. So there's no point in us being precious. Uh, that's an old Pogo comic. We have met the enemy and they are us. And yes, in fact... You are absolutely right. And I had no idea you'd been interviewed by the New York really, Post. You I, hardly I, mentioned it at all. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. I was telling it's everyone. It's a huge deal, man. You I was me. so pleased. Um, so thank you very uh, much to them for, for talking to me. Uh, but Matt, you are at MattPT55 on Twitter. At MattPT55. Email Matt. Say hello to him. He likes emails. Matt at MissedApex.net. You picking up those emails okay? Yes, I am, in fact, and occasionally replying to them. But even if I don't, please know that I do read every last one of them. But I don't have a convenient <laughs> like button like I do on Twitter yeah, no. to let you know. And, and same. And we're getting better. Uh, we did the, a mailbag episode in the week, yes. which I really enjoyed. So we are sorting. I like that, actually. Yeah, we're sorting our mail out. We are getting better at responding to that feedback. And um, all the links to everything we mentioned is in the show notes below because Matt sorts all that out for us. But Matt, what is your thing of the weekend? You know, uh, don't hate me. I, I'd like to say, oh, Con, I'd like to say, oh, Alvin getting those points for Williams is brilliant. But, but you know, if I think about the race, what was really exciting at the start was watching Hamilton fight his way back to the positions he lost. Yeah. And I'm going to say, that's the Hamilton that everybody shows up to see. And it was nice to see him near the front of the race driving like that. Oh, see, I, uh, I don't know. I don't want to argue it too much. But even then, to me, it was head down. It was, oh, I've got, I've got damage. The car's not working. And he's just having to be constantly talked down by, by the pit wall. And I'm, I'm not enjoying seeing Hamilton in the midfield. I don't think he's, a, he's, a, he's got the, a good mindset for driving in the midfield. You know, he's, he's a winner. Um, my thing of the weekend is going to be to, to Russell, who I think is responding to that challenge mentally better. And just from an approach the approach is better and whether or not he's uh, he's actually performing better than Hamilton I think that is that's still up in the air I think essentially both Mercedes drivers are doing a solid job but they're not in the you know they're in a kind of position where little things can make a huge difference you know in the midfield things can go slightly your way or against and you can be sixth or you can be 16th as we saw as we saw at Imola and, and we've seen two races where Hamilton ended up on top of Russell but for a safety car was was Hamilton significantly better than Russell I don't know I don't think I don't think it has been massive both drivers have been doing a, a solid job but I think Russell's taking it more in his stride at the moment and not wanting to just jump into your um no no that's of, of course, of course. bad thing yeah. I, I checked through the results just to make just for like a sanity check I checked through the season's results because everything that I was reading on social media was would have had you believe that Russell was dominating Hamilton this season. No, Certainly the way yeah, some of the pundits so. on Sky Sports have been putting it. it you, you could be forgiven for thinking that Russell was just absolutely kicking Hamilton's butt. But if you actually look at the reality of it, the, their performances are very similar in terms of speed. Hamilton has been ahead out of the five qualifying sessions. He's been ahead three times. In the races, he's only been ahead once, but 
two times he's had a uh, a position where he would have been ahead um, taken away by safety yeah. car. So in reality, it would have been 3-2 in qualifying, 3-2 in the race in Hamilton's favour. Um, in terms of all the practice sessions, Russell would have been ahead two more times in practice sessions think, than Hamilton, yeah. but they don't really count and they've been experimenting. So it's certainly not been a whitewash. And I think we'll probably see that proportion continue for the rest of the season. Since it's my happy thing, I, I like to end up by pointing out that we just may not be in a car where we can see much of a difference between Russell and Hamilton, which not to take away from my boy signs at all, but certainly last season signs beat Leclerc in the same car. In now the they same. have a car that's potentially the fastest one on the circuit. And, and we're seeing a little bit of a gap. So, so uh, what, yeah. what, what we, to, to put that maybe a different way, there's more variables in a 2022 Mercedes and and in a 2021 Ferrari, there's more variables and more different directions. So it's harder to tease out who's doing better. But my good thing of the weekend was actually going to go to, to Russell a little bit cumulatively. Obviously, we've praised Verstappen a lot. But cumulatively, Russell has done what he is expected to do and he's done well in the races and it's hard to fault him. And the fact that we're even talking 3-2 against Lewis Hamilton, I think... If you're a Russell fan, you'd have taken that at the beginning of the season. So a very, very impressive start. So, um, oh, the other good thing award I was going to go to is whoever positions the interviews, because they seem to always strategically put it that when Signs is being interviewed, the wind is gently blowing into his hair and picking it up and lifting it away. Never once does it come from the side or the back. No, always perfectly in front, like a Hollywood movie. And occasionally putting a shirt on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some good, some good direction there. All right, it's the the missed apex award, which is a bad thing. Oh no, you missed the apex. Who missed the apex for you, Brad? So some people are going to really disagree with me here because I've seen some people enjoy this on Twitter, but I thought the Martin Brundle grid walk was unnecessarily cringe. I appreciate he's being fed the names of people in his ear. I wouldn't know basketball players' names or baseball players or whoever he happened to come across on the grid, but I think he got quite a lot wrong today. And I actually felt like he was almost deliberately rude at times, but unaware of it. I, I don't know. It was uh, the the interview with the Williams sisters where he kind of just left the microphone in, in front of their face and they were like, oh, yeah. it was a real awkward pause. And uh, yeah, anyway, I... I feel like that segment is, I was getting in trouble from Rebecca, my fiance, <laughs> for having, for having That's that That's really off. funny. She wanted me to just turn it off. I, I, it I, kept, so... I, kept, I kept muting it. But it's a clash of worlds, isn't it? Where in the F1 world, Martin Brundle is a, is a, is a megastar and him walking around the grid is, is a big deal. And so if you've been invited to the paddock and you're an F1 fan and Martin Brundle wants to talk to you, that's like, wow, that's amazing. That's Martin Brundle. But if you're some big Hollywood star who's not really into F1, you don't know who this, you know, this middle-aged Brit, Brit is shoving a microphone in your face. So it does feel like he needs like a runner to go up to head of these people and go, Martin Brundle's about to interview you. He's like the one of the best-known British F1 broadcasters of all time and a pretty good F1 driver in his own right. So maybe you want to like at least make pretend. But they didn't give him any of that help. So I think he doesn't have the help that he needs to make that work. I feel like until they do that or until they set these interviews up in advance, 
in some yeah. way, it's, <laughs> it's going to end up looking unprofessional and a mess and rub people up the wrong way. When it's it's just unnecessary. It doesn't need to be like that. So so that's my missed apex. Okay, Matt, who's the who gets the missed apex award for you? Now I, I don't want people to take this the wrong way. Just because I like Ogon doesn't mean I hate Alonzo, but oh my goodness, did he ever miss the apex? He had a fast car. He was in the point. He got a great start and he just pitched it all out the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did it in the most Alonzo of ways as well, didn't he? Indeed. It was entertaining to watch him do it. I will, I will, I will hand that to you. It added much to the, uh, the joy of watching the race, but oh, wow. That was, that was a double points finish for Alpine that was just chucked away and i'm going to give my missed apex award to the thing that that triggered me the most and maybe we should make this a segment what triggered spanners most during the broadcast was when they cut to the people mid-race who were in the pool enjoying a pool party and there was a lot of people in the pool and like at least watch the race you've had a whole weekend to be in the pool you're just you may as well just come to my house and just spit in my face and just poke me in the eyes because that that was galling to see that they all that just at least watch the race that got my mistake apex award also i wanted to give bottas the good thing award for consistency and consistently being up there the bottas alfa romeo package is doing really well but then i guess we have to give him the missed apex for i guess kind of slightly stuffing it after the safety car restart as well and uh, that's brilliant guys thank you so much for joining us i hope we've done all right here as it is it sails past 1am in the morning. Well done to Brad Philpot for staying awake. Go and follow him on Twitter and on YouTube. Links in the show notes below. Of course, follow Matt to Rumpets. And follow me too. Why not? I'm the best one at Spanners Ready. And the show is at Missed Apex. We've got a Facebook group as well. Or you could be a patron and support us and join our patron Slack forum. It's like, a, it's like an app. It's like lots of WhatsApp channels all in the same app. And there's some extra content as well. So on Tuesday, Matt and I will do the Doom Scrolling Missed Apex podcast where we mix in some non-F1 stuff as well. It's a, a chill stream and a very relaxed podcast. It's not like a paywall for better content. If you support us, we'll give you some extra not-as-good content. Until next time, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex podcast. I'm struggling. I got to the end, though. say is it's been really difficult for us brits and we don't expect anyone to understand how hard it's been for us to stay up slightly later but just know that we got through it and we've been really really super brave hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing i love that luxury quality within reach go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com style